Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. A special podcast today with... Great thanks to Professor Chris Gray, who's been on the pod two or three times before. He's been very kind to come back. It's an auspicious occasion. We're just a few days out from the seventh anniversary of the Brexit referendum back in June 2016. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge since then, and much more than anybody thought thought possible. And indeed, I don't think anybody would have thought that we would be discussing the controversy that is Brexit so long after the original referendum. I think we would have all assumed that something would have been settled by now. But anyway, a big welcome to Chris. Chris is the doyen of Brexit experts, in our opinion. He is the Emeritus Professor of Business and Management Studies at Royal Holloway, University of London. He has been a professor in various universities, including the Venerable Cambridge, He writes a fantastic weekly blog called Brexit and Beyond, which for anybody interested in this stuff is, in my opinion, required reading and comes thoroughly recommended by both Jim and myself. He is the author of a book about Brexit called Brexit Unfolded, which both Jim and I have read, I suspect, several times. I'm pleased to say that that book has done so well that a second edition is scheduled for later in the summer. And Chris might like at some point in the conversation to tell us a little bit about that. It just falls to me to, again, say a big thanks to Chris for coming on. His time is very valuable. And I'm looking forward to the discussion the conversation. And at this point, I'm going to hand back to Jim for our first question. And from there, we'll just take the conversation in a free-flowing way. Okay. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining the podcast and really looking forward to the updated edition of your book, Brexit Unfolded in September. In your blog last Friday, you spoke about the fact that Brexit is still deeply divisive and hotly contested and that the Brexiteers are really shifting to a mode of defensiveness and blame shifting. And I think the Brexiteers' reaction to the report on Boris Johnson from the Privileges Committee there recently just shows the frame of mind those people have at the moment. There was a YouGov Brexit tracker survey last week suggesting that 58.2% of voters would vote to rejoin. And this is the highest percentage since the low of 47% back in 2016. There seems to be a clear, established and growing public view that Brexit was a mistake. Is that a correct assessment of how you see things in the UK at the moment? I think that's right. And the opinion polls 
you know, show that in terms of a steady. Uh, I should sorry, I should say first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I feel such a a, a a familiar friend to you guys now that I uh, I forget my manners, but um, it's always great to come and talk. Um, I mean, the opinion polls show that you know pretty clearly. Since I think the key point to say about this is that is that almost all the way through the Brexit process. Brexit has not been popular. The opinion polls went up and down a bit um, during the time when the, there was negotiation to leave. But I mean, basically, since the end of the transition period, except I think for a very brief point in April 21, when there was the thing about vaccines and both the idea of the vaccine rollout, but also you know the issue over the invocation of Article 16, or the abandoned invocation of Article 16 by the EU, but apart from that, there's always been a lead of people from people thinking it's a mistake to people thinking that it that it was the right thing to do, and that has steadily grown. But it's important to kind of dig into those figures a bit because what people mean by it being a mistake that varies quite a lot, and in particular, it varies quite a lot between people who were leave voters in in. in 2016, those who were Remain voters. And the principal cleavage there is that maybe something like 75% or more, uh, actually, no, I think I think maybe it was when it's 86% of, of people who voted leave, they think that it could have been a success, but, but it hasn't been sort of implemented properly. And many of those voters also think it's it, it could still be a success, okay? I mean, there's an interesting stat embedded in that that I haven't seen people comment on, which is the idea that I think 14% of leave voters say in that in that poll that they don't think the Brexit could ever have been a success, which does kind of pose a question as to you know, why you would vote that. But but anyway, I mean it's important to kind of bear that in, in, in mind because because although we can see that growth, slow but steady growth of people thinking that it's a mistake, because what it means is is different. That does inflect quite differently the politics of what you can then do with that. Did you did you quote the rejoin statistic? The YouGov yes. poll, yeah. Um, you'd have to remind me of that of that poll, but I, would I be right to say that that figure excludes don't knows? It does, yes, it does. It does. Yeah. Okay, and it's a thing that's quite important because the the I, I don't know whether I had seen that the YouGov poll, but the, the the most recent one, which I think I saw on uh, Statista, I think that we had actually had sixty two percent thought UK should join the EU, and 38% thought the UK should stay out. But when don't knows are included, that becomes 50% for joining uh, and 31% for staying out. Now, those kinds of poll leads are really not very different to what you could see over and over again in the run-up to the 2016 referendum. For people who want to, to want to rejoin the EU, or I prefer to say join the EU, because I think that that's a better way to to, 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 to a more forward-looking way of, 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 of framing it. And I think if you're campaigning for that, then you're absolutely right to campaign for it, because and, and, and it's not going to happen if people don't push for it. So I'm not trying to say people shouldn't push for it if that's what they want to do. But analytically... I would say that still seems to me to be a very, very long way off. And, and I'm quite unpopular with a lot of my, my readers my, or my core kind of readers for saying that, and I understand why, but nonetheless, I think that is, that is the case. Because those figures, then, if you... And, and, and if I want to be sort of argue against myself, I could say there's some evidence that the, the don't knows when pushed uh, break to more towards joining than towards uh, than towards staying out. So that, if you like, is sort of quite hopeful, if you like, for the for the rejoiners. And of course, we have got the important factors, as I think Peter Kellner and, and others have been pointing out, that you know all the time, every year that goes by, just because of the just just because of the sort of inexorable demographics of things, that that the cohort of voters who were most likely to vote leave are getting older and therefore uh, naturally. Chris, can I ask you a question about this? I've never seen anybody analyse it to the next stage, but it's a question I have of myself as much as anything else. I have seen that argument made that the Leave voters are dying. Let's be brutal about it. Therefore, the Remain cohort proportionately grows larger. But if you think about it, as I say, pushing the logic a little bit further, those Remain voters are also getting older. And one of the things that we know that usually, not always, happens to people as they get older, is that they become a wee bit more conservative, the seven stages of man and all, all that kind of thing. And, the, well, the brutal point is that, you know, we are getting older as, as a society demographically, and there are becoming, despite the fact the Leave voters are dying, more older people each year. Is it not possible that um, this argument falls on the basis that if you thought that age was a good predictor 
of where you stand on Brexit, that if we are getting older, it might actually go the other way. Two things about them. Firstly, Kellner, by the way, who's a very distinguished kind of pollster, says that the that the evidence doesn't show that so far, right? But but nonetheless, you could say there's not very much evidence so far because it's only. A, I think the argument you put forward there is is fundamentally flawed for this reason: that although age associated with voting to leave the EU. It doesn't follow, therefore, that as people get older, they get more anti-EU. The key point is the point that you made about being backward-looking. So the older voters in 2016 could look back to a time when Britain wasn't in the EU and say, well, we want to get that back. That kind of nostalgia is is very a very common political phenomenon. Okay, but for the younger voters, as they get older, Britain's out of the EU, but what they'll be looking back on is a time when Britain was in the EU. And therefore, the nostalgia factor will work to bolster uh, to bolster uh, support for the EU in those terms. I think that's right. Thank you. Thank and I think there is, a counter, there is an additional counterpoint to that, which is that we can't necessarily assume that that generation of people who were too young to vote uh, in 16 or, you know, or were just over the voting age then, we can't necessarily assume that by the time they say get into their late 20s, 30s, 40s, that they will necessarily configure the world's problems in a way that sees EU as a solution. And what I mean by that is that, in particular, is to the extent that, that climate crisis becomes more and more significant, you could imagine that cohort of voters becoming much more interested in global institutions as opposed to regional institutions. So I don't think we can take it for Fair. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that my home question has been quite definitively answered. Chris, if I might just change the subject slightly, to, uh, going back, picking up on Jim's theme of stuff that you've written recently, I think you did quite a, a long Twitter thread yesterday on something that Andrew Neil has written. It was interesting that it was Andrew Neil, um, the well-known publisher, broadcaster, um, media personality was really in the vanguard in his article that you referenced uh, of being one of these types that say if only Brexit had been done properly it could have been great it, it really was a let's make Brexit great again article and uh, you you took issue with this in in several ways the, the the problem that that you've got that I've got when we when we meet these kinds of arguments and I meet them all the time in the pub and across the dinner table I try hard to avoid them actually these days but they're always there this make Brexit great again argument is almost impossible to refute, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a hypothetical, it's a counterfactual, it's just something that is, sits there as, as a throwaway soundbite that it's almost impossible to tackle. You very valiantly tackled Andrew Neil head on, and I think quite successfully. But do you find it as difficult as I do to refute all this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, on that particular point, I mean, this sort of idea of a sort of Know, of this sort of endlessly deferred future, or I suppose also this idea of a kind of a pure platonic Brexit that is different to the Brexit that we've that we've actually got. It, it is it is very difficult, but I mean I mean the core line which I've always argued, you know, and, and which is the sort of central guiding theme of the book certainly, is that whatever form Brexit had taken, it would have been seen by significant group parts of those who supported Brexit as not being real Brexit, as not being true Brexit. So even if those things that, I mean, the things that, that Andrew Neil said in that mail article, and I so refer to the Twitter that I point out that some of them are things that you didn't leave to, need to leave the EU for, and others are things which are quite kind of questionable as to their as to their value, but but even supposing those things had been done, then you would then you would you would certainly still have people saying, "Oh, but this isn't real Brexit." There's no real logic in this because to take one obvious example of its illogic is that many of the most committed Brexiters now say, "Oh, we haven't got Brexit. We got Brexit in name only." Okay, but at the same time, they say things like, "Oh, but if we didn't have Brexit, then we couldn't have trade deals. If we didn't have Brexit, then we wouldn't have this." Now. You can't hold, logically, you can't hold simultaneously the position that we've got Brexit in name only, i.e. No, no real change. And on the other hand, that we have got these things which are benefits of Brexit. I don't know. Do I, I find it tiring? Yes, but I also find it a lot of time in the blog, I spend quite a lot of time looking at articles written by Brexit you know, Brexit journalists or Brexit commentators in the Telegraph or you know, wherever it may be. Inside that world, it all makes perfect sense. 
but outside of it doesn't. But I must just say one thing, which I don't think many people know. In relation to Andrew Neil, I actually probably have Andrew Neil to thank for the fact that that blog of mine has ended up getting such a big readership. And the reason for that is that I've been writing it for about six months and it hadn't had a very big readership because there's millions of blogs out there, obviously. And people kept saying to me, well, you should go on Twitter to publicise it, right? And I didn't really want to because I thought I would tweet it. But anyway, I did. And the very first day, which was I was on Twitter, it was February the 14th, 2017, and almost the first post I made was was to say, you know, read my latest blog. And I was so naive, I didn't know what was happening. At the time, I had my my Twitter account hooked up to my, my email address. So every single notifi- notification came to my email. And suddenly I had 5, 6, 10, 15, 20,000 emails of these notifications coming from Twitter. What the hell is going on? I had no idea at all. And it was only, it took me a few days to work it out and to reconstruct what had happened. But that somebody with a relatively small kind of Twitter account had, had tweeted saying this, this thing. And Andrew Neil had picked it up and put a tweet out saying something like, this looks like a blog to follow. Would he say that today? <laughs> Probably not. I've never had any contact with him at all of any sort. And there's never been any repetition there. But of course, because of the fact that he has, you know, however, you know, hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. And also, it was also at that point, I guess because it was Andrew Neil, that suddenly a whole stack of BBC journalists and politicians and MPs and so on started following the Twitter account. At least for that reason, I ought to be generous about Andrew. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. And serendipity, chance and circumstance plays, a huge, yeah. plays a huge role in, in all of our lives. Before I allow Jim to have a word in Edgeways, I want to pick up. I could pick up on several things that you you said there, but one of the things that is often remarked upon is the question that Brexiters are asked on BBC Question Time and all sorts of vox pop. The gotcha question that the journalists think that they've got is, well, Jacob or whoever, whatever Brexiteer they're speaking to, what are the benefits of Brexit that you can concretely? point to. There are always two, two are the same, which is that, well, we managed to help Ukraine more than anybody else, and we did the vaccine rollout. And it it doesn't seem to impinge on any of them that the logical and factually correct argument is that we could have done both of the things that we did with both Ukraine and the VAX program inside the EU. There were no restrictions, material import that would have would have made much of a difference to that. that. That correction, if you like, or that correct argument doesn't ever impinge on it because as recently as this weekend I heard Vexiters saying Ukraine and the vaccine rollout but there's also a third one a more recent one that I've seen and there's an academic called Matthew Goodwin I don't know whether you've ever heard of him and when asked this question he gave what sounded to me like a a jaw-dropping answer and he said the biggest benefit for me of Brexit is the restoration of democracy in Britain in 2016 as if we didn't have democracy before 2016. So these three things are the three answers that they give. The fact that two of them, at least, if not all of them, in my view, are completely arseways. That's a, that's a technical term. Uh, do you get as frustrated as me when you hear this stuff being repeated ad nauseum? Yes, I do. It's, it's, what can you do except keep, you know, except keep plugging away and saying, and trying to challenge it? That it is, and it's certainly true, the opinion poll stuff shows that the vaccine one in particular has stuck with the public. You know, I talk a lot in terms of there having been a kind of battle for the narrative of, you know, since the end of the transition period, is Brexit good or bad? And by and large, the Brexiters have lost that, that narrative. But on vaccines and also to an extent on Ukraine, the public do actually believe that. And, and, and I would like to say there's something about that, which is that those two claims are quite interesting because they are different to the, the, all the debates about economics and trade. Because on economics and trade, all the time, the Brexiters are being defensive in the sense that they are having to counter you know, things saying, well, you know, trade is lower than it would have been, GDP is lower than it would have been, inflation is higher than it would have been. And so in terms of the kind of battle for the narrative, they're always having to say, uh, oh, well, no, no, it hasn't been as bad as that. Now, that's a very politically, that's quite a very kind of weak argument, because even if people accept it, all you're saying is, oh, well, it hasn't actually been as bad as people say. Ukraine and vaccines are the two cases where they can say, regardless of it being whether it being true or not, but it can be it be saying this isn't a defensive argument. This is being put forward as positive and, and unalloyed good things, and I think that's you know one of the reasons why they keep sort of pushing that line. Restoration of democracy. 
I mean, in a way, that's just, that, that, and I saw that tweet, by the way, uh, and I thought about replying to it as well. But, you know, it's like Twitter becomes exhausting if you, if you, if you try to, you can't, you can't counter this tidal wave, right? It's another version, you know, the familiar kind of thing of, oh, well, you know, but this is all about sovereignty. And got, <laughs> there are so many kind of obvious problems with it. But I would say the most fundamental problem is that, and Goodwin, I think, there kind of says, or in a, in a follow-on kind of explanation, he says, well, because, you know, you can vote for a, a party to, you know, to do this, to do that. Yeah. Well, but the fundamental counter to this is the fact that Britain left the EU discredits it. Because if it were true that as a member state, you did we, we did not have sovereignty, then it would follow that it was not possible to exercise sovereignty by leaving, Right. And actually, the same goes for democracy, because if his argument is to say, well, if you don't like these arrangements, you can you can vote for a party and change your opinion. Well, you can say, if you don't like being a member of the EU, you can vote for parties that want to leave the EU. And that indeed is what happened. The pressure of that voting is what, for UKIP, is what then was one of the main things, as indeed Matthew Goodwin himself wrote about in the days when he was a straightforward political scientist as opposed to a, an advocate, I suppose. And because of that voting, and ultimately that voting then led to a vote to leave, and we left. So if the argument is that, is that what makes things a democracy is that you can vote to change your political arrangements, then that is exactly what happened. It's completely irrelevant to the question of whether Brexit is a good thing or not. That's, that's, that, is the, that, that is the question. It is as democratic to have left as it is not to have left. And, of course, the other side of the coin, and, and I perhaps can say it to you guys in particular, is that it would be surprising to go to citizens of Ireland or Germany or France or Spain and say to them, are you not a democracy? They might have all kinds of answers as to flaws in their own democracies, but it wouldn't be, oh, because we're a member of the EU. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, Chris, I just want to take, take you back to the whole economics piece. Chris Johns and myself on this podcast frequently discuss the state of the UK economy. And Chris has an incredibly pessimistic view and prognostication for the UK economy. I've heard the argument made by Brexiteers that actually Germany and the euro area technically went into recession in the first quarter of this year. The UK economy hasn't. So hence, Britain is doing better outside the European Union. But last week, the um, International Institute for Management Development, the IMD, published its latest World Competitiveness Index and it showed Denmark number one, Ireland jumped from number 11 to number two, but Britain fell from 23rd to 29th position. And two factors were cited as being instrumental. One was worsening productivity performance that Chris and myself have spoken about many times. And secondly, rising bureaucracy. Seven years down the road, and, and, and I suppose you know, more like a couple of years really into Brexit. How do you assess the impact on the economy? I mean, has it made things notably worse or? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that every bit of credible, serious evidence points in that direction. I mean, the debate, if there is a debate, remember what I just said a minute ago, the debate might be, what is the extent of that? You know, how, you know, how bad has it been? And I think that um, Jonathan Porter has just put out a uh, a kind of a seven-year overview, if you like, of, of, of the economic debates, and, and that is basically that is basically what he says. Yeah? Of course, that isn't to say, for example, you know, the UK's productivity problem. And, you, know, you guys will know this better than me, I'm sure, but you know, long predates 
Um, I mean, I can remember going to a, a big event in when um, when Gordon Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he was very, you know, very hot on this issue about 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 productivity. Uh, you know, and that was in the early two thousands, let's say. And I mean, actually, you can go back, I think, much much further, probably back to the nineteen fifties. Even I think you can probably trace that. Because the point about Brexit is that it was sold to the British public as being beneficial, and not just beneficial actually on balance, but unquestionably beneficial. And that is the test that we have to and can and should legitimately apply to it. Not whether it has been, not how bad it has been, but why it hasn't been good. And and one of the things that that, um, that uh, boils my blood, as uh, <laughs> people seem to go kind of say, like, about that sovereignty thing, is that if you look, I, I think I've got a feeling I've said this on this podcast before, because I, I always end up saying, if you look at that Leave campaign, it was in so many ways an economic campaign. You know, yes, there was there was the thing about about taking back control, and, and you could say there was the thing about sovereignty, but the, but it was but it was all, it was never suggested that this sovereignty came at any cost, and whenever it was suggested that it had a cost, that was derided as project fear. So that's so that's the first thing that 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 even the argument for sovereignty was implicitly an economic argument, right? Because it was sovereignty, it was it was it was it was at least costless sovereignty. But secondly, almost all of that campaign, far more than focusing on sovereignty as an abstract ideal, it was the idea that this would lead to certain concrete benefits, and they were economic benefits, right? I mean, the most obvious thing, although you we three would no doubt dispute it would be an economic benefit, but the most obvious thing was about immigration and the idea that this would therefore give you higher wages. That's an economic argument. The idea that it would mean more money for the NHS is an economic argument. And that is not just about the £350 million pounds on the bus. It's about all of that campaign material that was put out about how you wouldn't be having to wait for doctors, uh, appointments, you know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, that it would mean better housing or more, more availability of housing. These were economic arguments, right? And so it simply isn't good enough for the Brexiters now to say, well, we don't want to be judged on that, or we shouldn't we shouldn't be judged on that, we should just be judged on sovereignty. And, and of course, to an extent, they can't escape that, and particularly since the trust budget, I think that it be, has become more and more difficult in British politics to kind of, of course, they still do it, but it's had less and less traction, and I think this partly explains the opinion polls, it has less and less traction to sort of try to say, oh, well, the economics don't really matter, yeah? Because one of the things the trust budget did, if nothing else, was to absolutely centrally focus politics on the question of of economics, of inflation, of cost of living, and of economic growth. Of course, it's complicated because, as, as I think Chris mentioned at the beginning, in a different context, we're talking here about counterfactuals. And so when we say that growth is less than it otherwise would have been, people don't directly experience that in a sense, you know? Um, but I think what people do directly experience, uh, although whether or not they attribute it to Brexit is less clear. I mean, they certainly do directly experience food inflation. And we had, you know, a very credible study. Brexiters dismiss it, of course. But, but, the, but the Brexit economists, it's always the same ones. You know, you have all of this weight of, you know, whether it's academics, whether it's uh, professional economists in, in, in commercial organisations or in think tanks, and not even ones who are kind of in the UK and are particularly kind of partisan or involved in Brexit politics, but all over the world. And it's always just the same. You and I could name them. 20, Julian Jesso, Catherine McBride, uh, Graham Gudgeon. Patrick um, Minford. You know, uh, yeah, well, Patrick Minford. Yeah. And, and you kind of feel in the sense of, you know, are there any circumstances under which those people would say, yeah, it was a bad thing? That's a fascinating question, because I think that we've reached the point for many people where it's become, I think it became a long time ago, actually, tribal. And the the nature of uh, supporting your tribe or supporting your team is, is, of course, the test of loyalty is even when you're losing, you still support them. And that's, I, I think, a, a big part of what's going on. One of the things that you mentioned there, Chris, which is very dear to my heart, is about the complexity of it all. And I think that's one of the the problems that people like us have, well, people like me anyway, you're much better at explaining complexity than I am. But what, what do I mean by this? Well, there are various ways that you could, you could look at this. And, and one of the, the most complicated of areas that is so, so directly affected by Brexit, of course, is trade. 
And you and I both know that trade negotiations are for experts with very deep domain knowledge of mind-numbing complexity, countless thousands of pages of details when you are negotiating a trade treaty, the sort of stuff that quite naturally and understandably is hidden from, from ordinary mortals like, like me anyway. But there was a conference last week called Trade Unlocked in Birmingham. I don't know whether you noticed it going on. I'm, sh- I'm sure you did. And there are various aspects to this. And first of all, the government didn't send any ministers to it at all. Labour sent a couple of shadow ministers, which raises the whole way in which both parties are really not addressing the Brexit issue anymore. And in my view, addressing it in very, very similar ways by mostly ignoring these these kinds of details. This trade conference did go into a lot of these mind-numbing details. And it, it, in, in it, it, there was referred to something called an electronic trade documents bill. Now, if anybody is still awake at this point, that wasn't what the point of the conference was about. But it's, it's, it's currently working its way through Parliament. And one of the jaw-dropping things about this bill is that it, it draws our attention to the fact that nearly all trade documentation when you are actually engaged in the business of exporting and importing in the UK, is paper-based. And this bill which is designed within a few years to take it all digital. It's another government IT project about which we could probably express a great deal of scepticism. In Parliament, the Trade Minister has claimed that uh, contract processing times for exporters and importers in the UK will go from seven to ten days now to 20 seconds seconds in the future. You're familiar with it, of course you are. And that it will boost trade by 13 percentage points, a very precise estimate. But going back to this conference where this did come up, the thing that did come up at the conference was something called a single trade window, which is uh, the government's trying to get one point of contact for exporters and importers to interact with, with the multiple UK government agencies and departments, about which all sorts of trade experts are deeply sceptical. But the other initiative of the government, which the conference last week seemed to get much more excited about, was digitization. That, that I think, uh, you know, uh, brings all those comments about, about government IT projects and whether or not they have... Just talk to somebody in the NHS about public sector IT and you'll understand their scepticism. If, as I say, anybody has paid attention to this little bit, this tiny little segment of discussion about trade, they will know, they'll begin to understand that it that it's it, it's very complicated. And there, there, there's just two more reports I want to reference here. And again, I'm sure that you've seen them. Um, there were two reports last week, one from the Resolution Foundation and one from an, a group called Midlands Energy Trade Body. And these two reports document in great detail how UK manufacturing, particularly high-end manufacturing, starting with cars and chemicals, are gradually, and it's, it's boiled frog syndrome, gradually being squeezed out of the tightly integrated EU supply chains, about which we heard so much during the Brexit referendum. Now, that, what that, this actually means is that without us doing anything, just the way in which the, the Brexit process is set up, is that... Uh, advanced UK manufacturing, particularly and ironically, given all of the levelling up rhetoric that we've had in recent years, this advanced manufacturing is usually in the Midlands and in the north of England. This is going to gradually atrophy, leaving only low productivity and low pay manufacturing left. Sound familiar? And the Financial Times' excellent Peter Foster, who writes about all of this stuff, from which I've taken a lot of the, the, the previous uh, points, is and it's a great quote at the end of his article, the British frog is being slowly boiled. And the word that caught my attention was atrophy, which is if nothing changes, if we just simply carry on doing what we're doing without having another row with the EU or without making anything better, so we just simply do nothing, things are going to get worse. And I know a lot of people are pinning their hopes, um, certainly on the uh, remain or rejoin or Brexit regret side of the thing, that we are going to renegotiate this trade and cooperation agreement, which has led to all of this gradual atrophying of high-end British manufacturing. It's going to be reviewed in 2026. Yay, maybe we can move closer to the EU. No, because the lead Brussels official in that trade and cooperation agreement re-look, re, re if you like, has said it's an implementation review, not a revising, not a revisiting, 
not an amending review. It's just an implementation review. So things are bad, but in order to understand just how bad they are, you've got to get into the, some of this mind-numbing detail that I referred to about trade and why it is getting bad. I've just given the tip of the iceberg of what a, a typical trade expert knows and deals with every day of their professional lives. How does this get... How do we... Uh, better explain this to to the general public and in particular this point that if we do nothing it's going to get worse yeah and, and another another really important index of that which i think i think you know many economists worry about much more actually than the trade figures is the is 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 what has happened to investment uh, since uh, well actually since 2016 and i should say by the way that that like you i mean i'm, I'm not a I'm not a trade. I'm not a trade wonk, and, and, and that stuff is, is is actually everything about Brexit. It, when you dig into it, just has these enormous complexities. And one of the things that I think is so obvious about about the kind of Brexit is that they just kind of we don't know we don't understand how our computers work. We don't understand how our cars work. You know, it's just like it's all the under the bonnet stuff. And so many people just kind of like talk to it, just like assume, if you like, you know, oh, well, of course, you know, in the modern world, you know, you don't have to, planes fly and trade gets done and all this sort of happens, uh, you know, and don't, and just simply aren't aware. And there's no reason why they should be of, of these really complex, in particular complex regulatory and supply chain architectures that underlie that. Of course, that was one of the, you know, that was one of, one of the, one of the travesties, if you like, of the whole, idea of putting putting Brexit to that kind of uh, yes or no kind of question. And as to how we get these complexities across, I mean, I don't know, because, you know, one of the one of the particular sort of leitmotifs of, of, of this kind of populist politics in general is this sort of anti-expertise thing, you know, it's, oh, you know, we don't need to know about that. Um, although, again, notice that the Brexiters are, are very fond of experts when they happen to be you know, the Patrick Mimfords and the... I'm not a member of the Labour Party and I don't have any affiliation with the Labour Party. But I do think that... that and I actually wrote about this in my column in... I have a column in, a monthly column in Byline Times in the print edition of this. But I think there are definite signs that Labour are thinking strategically about about the modern economy. I and mean, they're obviously taking over quite a lot of ideas from sort of Bidenomics. Um, and they certainly have kind of seemed to have come to terms with seem to understand you know there's been this really significant geopolitical shift towards protectionism and that kind of era of um of kind of you know of growing globalization of of, of the kind of if you like the, you know what we call the kind of the washington consensus this has really kind of shifted and allied with that this sort of notion about the crucial importance of security of supply chains and security of energy and so on now i don't say that they have got the policy answers to that and i don't say that they have got the necessarily you know the economic levers to deliver it but at least it does show a form of strategic thinking which has been utterly absent with with with, certainly with the conservative government you know but they have to keep it hidden or at least they are keeping it hidden because the ministers that turned up at this conference last week on trade and manufacturing it, particularly the North and the Midlands in England, made all the usual Labour Party utterances about getting closer to Europe, um, but then said we and, and criticised Boris Johnson's red lines, and then effectively said Boris Johnson's red lines are our red lines as well. We're never going to go anywhere near the customs union. We're never going to go anywhere near the single market. And so there's a. I'm getting a sense that they are what they're saying in public is not what they're thinking in private. No, no, because we're talking about two slightly different things there. Uh, I mean, you're talking there about the question, the specific question of relations with the EU and, and post Brexit stuff and so on. I was I was talking not about that per se, but just about this wider kind of question of having a notion of industrial strategy and economic strategy. Absolutely. And just on that, I mean, one of the things that we've been doing on this podcast, we talked to an expert in the United States about this very issue recently. And it was really interesting that he was table thumpingly adamant that the whole free trading uh, Washington consensus thing is as dead as a dodo in Washington. And that the idea that Britain could ever negotiate with Washington, whoever's in power, a free trade agreement, it has a zero probability because they have utterly lost interest in this free trading globalized world that was 
previous because of the strategic imperative of dealing with China and also to a lesser extent economically Russia. Uh, it is all about supply chain management. And if you can't onshore, you've got friendshore, all this stuff. And I totally take your point, and I apologise for conflating no, no. The, the two but, issues. But, 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 but they do end up being linked because, I mean, because, I mean the question about to what extent that Labour strategy, which they're open about, I mean, Rachel Reeves was in in Washington, in fact, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, promoting it. But, 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 part, but, but one reason to be sceptical about whether they can deliver it is because of the... You know, it's because you know what have they got in the way of the Brexit? Of Brexit was it? What I would say about that is, firstly, you know, despite what has been said about the, the about the T, about the TCA, um, and it's true, of course, you know, it is only a review, um, but there are certainly you know well informed people of whom a good example recently is Mushtaba Rahman, the um, of the Eurasia Institute, and he kind of suggests that actually, you know, there is a bit more scope. Inevitably, it's going to you know it's, it's going to have limitations what can be done within that kind of TCA envelope. But even within it, there are things that can be done that would make, you know, a, they wouldn't shift the dial hugely, but they would make a difference. SPS agreement is the office. But I think that, but I do think that that SPS thing does imply that the one red line they don't talk about Labour is ECJ. And I think that matters because, yes, okay, they're still saying single market, they're, single, they're still saying customer union. And by the way, although I've got some disagreements about how they do it, but I think they're actually right to do that because of the fact that I don't think they can deliver that in the next parliament. I don't think they they could, don't, can't deliver it domestically. They probably can't deliver it with, you know, with, with the EU. Or with the, and so I think they would be setting themselves up to fail in that sense. Um, but let me come back to the ECJ thing. Because if you think back to Theresa May when when she first you know enunciated this Lancaster House speech in particular, no role you know no role for the ECJ. Well, that got kind of softened a bit in some ways because ECJ has a, a role in relation to uh, uh, EU set, uh, uh, EU citizens in the UK, and of course then there's the Northern Ireland thing. But, but then the whole way that Frost and Johnson negotiated the TCA, you know, it was this kind of what someone it could be Peter Foster possibly calls a sovereignty miser or sovereignty hoarding kind of view. This sort of it's, it's sovereignty first. At all costs, and that so absolutely, you know, not wanting ECJ, any kind of ECJ. Well, if they're going to do an SPS deal, and if it is going to be a dynamic alignment deal, uh, and by the way, that's the only deal they'll get with the EU. They won't get an equivalence deal um, because that's already been rejected by the EU over and over again, and it's just not practical anyway. Um, um, that if you do that, then you are accepting a role for the ECJ. It's a distant role. And if you do that, then actually you've opened the door to a whole lot of other things. What? Well, you get rid of a lot of the difficulties about participation, participating in various programmes. In particular, you get rid of the problem about access to EU databases. And that matters not just economically, but in terms of security cooperation. And ultimately, really, it was only the ECJ red line that stood in the way of... Um, you remember, you know, in the early days, we think now of Ukraine in a very different way. But, but, but in the early days, there was a lot of talk about the Ukraine model for Brexit, right? So, an association agreement, the deep and special something, something, something. Anyway, it's an association agreement, and the stumbling block for that really is ECJ, because again, it's in the background, but ultimately, the ECJ thing. So, if you have breached that wall of in principle. And very quietly, because, you know, I haven't heard anybody ask them about that, right? Um, um, and then you can, you know, so, 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 then you, so, so then that takes you somewhere, right? Um, you might say, from a rejoiner perspective, well, maybe that's a bad thing, because anything that softens the damage makes the damage less off, off, obvious to people and therefore accommodates them more to to stay. But then if you do say that, you can't simultaneously say, oh, well, Labour's policy will make no difference at all. Either it does shift the dial somewhere or it doesn't. You know, um, So I'm a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more positive about what I think Labour, Labour potentially can do, even within this constraint they've set for themselves. I'm very conscious of that we've taken far too much of your time already, and I probably should leave the last word, given that he hasn't had very many, to, to my partner, Jim. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I, I guess I'm bringing you north of the border. Where is Scottish independence at this stage in the whole equation? Never, would never presume to be any kind of expert on Scottish politics anyway, but certainly what's happening recently is, is you know, is, makes that much more trivial. I mean, to me, it feels as if it's receded, the independence thing a bit, in terms of, you know, immediately after the referendum, I mean, I really felt, as I think a lot of people do, you know, that this was that that was really going to pretty definitively put the boosters under Scottish independence and that it was really just a matter of time. That doesn't seem so clear now to me. I don't know how you how you would see that. It feels, you know, partly because of the difficulties that the SNP have got into, but actually also in some ways because of just seeing the complexity of the process of Brexit has maybe made people kind of think, well, hang on, some of those complexities are going to reappear in a different form, you know, with, with you know, if, if Scotland becomes not just independent, but also, you know, rejoins the EU and is part of a single market and customs union and with all the potential implications of that. Whereas on the other hand, uh, immediately after, after the referendum, I kind of had this thought, well, Irish reunification could be the kind of long-term kind of thing out of this. And I feel as if those things, that, that, that now that feels as if that's, as if that is perhaps a bit closer, but that that feels now, you know, I I I wouldn't bet against the idea that we got Irish reunification before we got Scottish independence. Let's, let's put it that way. I mean, the other thing is is this isn't doesn't speak to what you you were saying, but I think um, oh sorry, but there is also the issue about you know how Labour may perform in Scotland in the next election, and, and I mean, certainly on the basis of present opinion polls, they would take a lot from the SNP, and that would. I, I think there's also this really interesting question, which is that. You know, in terms of sort of kind of future routes, and I think that Chris said early on in this about about there's almost not much difference between the sort of Sunak policy on Brexit or post Brexit stuff and the Labour policy, and and I, I and I think that that's that's right and it's quite interesting, but but the, but the difference is that Sunak is so constrained by his party. I mean, okay, you know, he did the Windsor framework, and he also, which you know, is 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 good. I think you know pulled back on the retained EU law bill. Um, and you feel as if his general kind of instinct, if you like, is 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 towards, you know, but they're still, you know, they're still caught up in these negotiations about Horizon, for example. So I think that, again, you know, there's some hopefulness for a Labour government in that respect, because, because, because even though even though Labour, a lot of Labour supporters are really, really going to be unhappy about not having a rejoin policy, not having a single market policy, not having a customer union policy, but they don't actually, they don't object to the closening of ties with the EU. They object to it not being enough, but they don't object to it in itself. And that's also true amongst Labour leave voters as well. And so I think that the situation will be very different. Now, this is nothing to do with Scotland. I guess I've dodged that question because I don't, I don't, I, I don't know about it. But maybe this is a good place to, to close. Is that this thing about Brexit? As so many of us have said from the beginning, you know, this is an unfolding process and it is going to go on unfolding. Um, and you mentioned the, the the new edition of the book, which with my book, which which will come out in September. Um, the original book ended at the end of the transition period. Um, and the new book, the new book will still be the same book, except that it will have a long um, afterword added to it, a very long afterword added to it, which tells the story from the the end of the transition period through to effectively it stops last Friday, the seventh anniversary of the of the uh, 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 of the book. And you know, but it, this is going to be so that so that takes us another two years on. But this is going to go on being. I, I sometimes have this thought, am I going to write, go on writing that blog forever, you know? And, and I don't know is the answer to that. But it's not obvious there's ever going to be an, an end point where you kind of say, and that is the reality of Brexit, it's never going to go away. I think that's a fantastic, if somewhat bleak note to end upon. Um, at least it'll give us all something to do in our semi-retirements, Chris. Um, perhaps I'll hand over to Jim to just say the last few words and, and, and again, a big thank you. Yeah, listen, Chris, thanks a million for joining us again. Um, Fascinating, particularly from an Irish perspective to understand the dynamics of Brexit, because obviously is having and has had a significant impact on the Irish economy. But actually, the impact has been largely positive rather than negative. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. You know, if you think of the very early days, you know, when, when, when I think, you know, and, and I think very early on, Ender Kenny, was it? I think it was Ender Kenny who, who yeah. kind of established a sort of, you know, a sort of commission. And I mean, everyone thought it was going to be catastrophic for uh, the island's economy. That's not true, is it? No, no, it's not true at all. No, no, ab- absolutely not. It has complicated business for certain businesses, yeah. but at a macroeconomic level, um, Ireland has certainly benefited. Uh, it may change when the new trading arrangements come into place, you know, who knows, but. Listen, thanks a million. We really enjoyed that. And we really look forward to, number one, talking to you again. And number two, uh, getting the updated book in September. So the very best of luck with that. Thanks. Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. Always great to talk to you guys. Thanks. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.